This is an ABC podcast. Today, you are witnesses to the hope for a future based on the active and permanent struggle against poverty in all its forms. Today, with humility and before the international community, we take upon ourselves the obligations towards our people. We want it to be ourselves. We wanted to take pride in being ourselves, a people and a nation. Today, with your assistance, we are effectively what we have always striven to be. That's the joyous sound of the people of East Timor, along with Janana Guzmao, finally winning independence from Indonesia after 24 years of brutal occupation. Welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer. Always great to have your company. And remember, it's 20 years since the Howard government entered that conflict in East Timor to defend their bid for independence. Foreign Minister Alexander Downer was in the room when that decision was made, and he joins us later in the program. While the sounds of East Timor remind us of a time we want to remember, there are other sounds we would rather forget. The world will note that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, a military base. We have used it in order to shorten the agony of war. We shall continue to use it until we completely destroy Japan's power to make war. This is AM. And first, the Soviet Union has admitted there's been an accident at one of its nuclear power stations. The first signs of the accident were detected in Scandinavia, nearly 1,600 kilometres from the power station at Chernobyl. Japan fighting to avert a nuclear catastrophe after another explosion at the damaged Fukushima nuclear power plant. A third explosion has released radiation and forced workers to leave the facility. Now, these were just a few ABC archival reports of nuclear disaster. So there's little wonder that the word nuclear fills many people with a sense of dread, right? But is that all there is? Nuclear anything is bad? If so, why then is nuclear energy being considered as a valid option of an alternative source of power? Who's considering this and why? Well, joining me to decide whether it's smart or a dangerous idea are my guests. Adam Bant is Deputy Leader of the Australian Greens Party, and David Limbrick is the Liberal Democratic Member of the Victorian Legislative Council. He represents the South Eastern Metropolitan Region. They both join me from the ABC Melbourne studio. Adam, David, welcome to Between the Lines. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me, Tom. David, let's start with you. You made a proposal that's currently being floated in the Victorian Parliament. Summarise briefly what it is. Okay, so... um Back in 1983 in Victoria, we instituted bans on pretty much everything nuclear, so everything to do with exploration, mining, any sort of technology or anything to do with the fuel cycle. And uh, my view is, and the view of the parliament at this stage, is that a lot of things have changed since 1983. In 1983, we weren't talking about things like climate change so much. The nuclear technology was very different to today. People's opinions have changed a lot about nuclear in that time. So what this proposal is doing is reviewing that ban, that prohibition that was put in place in 1983, 
and looking at would there be some benefits if this ban was uh, removed in Victoria? Have things changed so that there might be benefits that we're missing out on? Okay, let's clarify exactly what we're talking about. I mean, how is it different from what is used in, say, weapons? It's totally different to what's used in weapons. So this inquiry is just looking at all nuclear technologies that are associated with you know, energy production or science or medicine, but we're not looking at anything to do with uh, weapons or anything like that. And that's a totally yeah. different technology stream. And how does Victorian law compare with other states and territories? Uh, it's fairly similar in some ways. So New South Wales has a similar type of ban, uh, with exceptions, of course, with the existing reactor that we've got in Sydney. And in federal law, there was a ban put in in 1998 by the, I think it was actually the Democrats and the Greens put in a, an amendment to stop any new licenses for new nuclear reactors. So there's similar bans in other states, but there's also similar inquiries happening at the moment. So there's a flurry of inquiries at the moment. There's a federal inquiry, a New South Wales inquiry, and now a Victorian inquiry looking at these bans and whether they're still relevant in 21st century. Okay. Now it's past the uh, Victorian upper house. What do you yes. want to achieve then? I mean, I'm assuming it's something to do with uh, a solution to climate change. Well, there's lots of possible benefits. And one of them is to look at uh, clean energy production, but there's also other benefits. So there's a lot of uses for nuclear technology, such as industrial industrial energy production, uh, medicine, scientific research, and uh, even space exploration. So there's lots of things that we're not allowed to do at the moment because of these prohibitions. And uh, we want to look at what might be the possible benefits and things that Victoria is being left behind on. Let's bring in Adam Bant here. We're already using nuclear energy in things such as cancer treatments, x-rays. There are some good applications, aren't there? Well, there's currently, it's currently illegal in Australia to use nuclear energy to generate electricity, for example, to run a nuclear power plant. And it's that that David is talking about changing, having a look at changing. There's a reason it's illegal. We don't want a Fukushima-style disaster in Australia. We don't want a repeat of Chernobyl here in Australia. It's illegal um, for very, very good reasons. So there's so no such thing as a good nuclear energy, Adam? In terms of building new nuclear power plants to generate electricity in Australia, no, absolutely not. I mean, if you have, we, we now have the situation where renewables plus storage would be cheaper by several orders of magnitude than building a nuclear power plant. So if you have an accident at a wind farm, it's called a stiff breeze. If you have an accident at a nuclear power plant, it is called Chernobyl or Fukushima. Why on earth would you want to pay two or three times as much for energy that is dangerous where there is no way of storing the waste safely when we have safe alternatives here in Australia now that are cheaper. David Limerick. Yeah, so firstly, uh, the IPCC clearly recommends in the 2014 report that nuclear energy will play a part in decarbonisation. With regards to the costs that you're talking about, I don't see how it's possible to properly price something that's prohibited. It if you're going to price something, you need a market for it. there's plenty of worldwide experience. Every yeah, one of so, the recent power plants that have been constructed have blown out. The one in the UK that they're looking at, they're now looking at close to $50 billion for the total cost of that plant. None of them. There's been a study of every one of the nuclear 674 nuclear reactors built between 1951 and 2017. Every one of them required government subsidies. None of them were 
were um, totally funded by the private sector and uh, put up by the private sector, and there's a reason for that. Do you, you think things should be prohibited because they're expensive? By that safe, logic, renewables should be prohibited. I think they should be prohibited because they're dangerous. I don't think you're listening to the science about how quickly we need to act because we need to do it in the next 10 years, and these proposals won't come online in that time. And B... If we're going to do it, why go for the more expensive option when there's a cheaper, safer option? There, there are lots of uh, applications here. I mean, what you're talking about is grid-scale electricity production. That's primarily what you're talking about with renewables. There are lots of other applications of nuclear technology which are outside of that. So things like industrial thermal heat production, there is no renewable technology that can provide that. Things like remote mining operations, there is no renewable technology that can provide that sort of Are energy. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? Have you paid attention to what is happening in the industry in Australia at the moment? If you just if tuned we... in, you're on Between the Lines on RN, and this is Tom Switzer, and my job today is made a lot easier by my guests, <laughs> Adam Bant <laughs> from the Greens and David Limbrick from the Liberal Democrats, both in Melbourne. And we're discussing the possibility in Australia of introducing nuclear energy as another alternative source of power. David Limbrick, uh, South mm. Australia has seen a lot of success with its green energy markets. Uh, the public policy think tank, the Australia Institute, held an audit that showed for the last year and a half, half of all supplied energy was from renewable generation. Why doesn't Victoria follow their lead? Okay, if we look at South Australia, one of the things that they always talk about is this uh, is the Tesla battery, right? So if we wanted to supply Australia's total market with Tesla batteries, we would need about 700 of them to supply just four hours of, of power for the Australian market. And that, that would cost about $50 billion. Adam Bant. What we need is not baseload power, it's dispatchable power. I, we just need to be guaranteed that when you flick the switch, the lights will come on. The power is available when you need it. And so um, if you build enough renewables and have enough interconnection across Australia, what the South Australian experience is showing us is that you can deliver a lot of that because although the wind may not be blowing in one place, it's usually blowing somewhere in, in a state or across Australia. And so provided you've built enough of it and you've treated it as an engineering problem rather than a market problem, then you going to have capacity coming on. But what you need is storage. That's not all lots of batteries expensive as you suggest. Let's build some off-river pumped hydro. Okay, let's move Are back to nuclear. Are you suggesting you want dams? Let's move it back to nuclear here because last year there was a move to build uh, nuclear waste facilities. I think it was in rural South Australia and it led to a broader discussion. This is local resident Tony Clark. He was asked what he thought of nuclear energy. What do I think? I think of Chernobyl for one and then I think of Fukushima for one man-made uh, infrastructure that is supposed to be foolproof suddenly destroyed and start leaking crap out all over the place. And so I don't trust that anything man-made can withstand the forces of nature. Now, David Limbrick, there is an image problem here, isn't there? Well, interestingly, Fukushima was what changed my mind on nuclear. I used to be anti-nuclear. If you look at what happened in Fukushima, no one uh, was harmed from radiation. Uh, Fukushima Beach just reopened last week. And in fact, my family's been there twice for holidays since the disaster. They've got a really cool resort there with a water slide. One of the biggest problems that they've got in Fukushima at the moment is people there getting harmed by scaremongering about radiation and people are scared to go there for tourism or buy their produce when there's no problems whatsoever with it. There's 80,000 people still displaced in Fukushima. There's been yes. 2,000 deaths that have been connected in one way or another with the disaster. There's None three, of them from radiation. There's three reactors that are still 
um, releasing radioactive uh, nanoparticles after they melt down. Um, it is still leaking contaminated water into the ocean. The cost of what they've had to at Chernobyl, like they have just recently spent in the billions of dollars to put a, a big concrete bunker over something that is still radioactive. Um, the number of deaths from that still hasn't been calculated, but it's at least in the tens of thousands, if not higher. Cancer rates amongst kids shot up to 90% in the aftermath. If something goes wrong, it goes wrong massively. And if there is still no safe way of storing the waste. You were talking about a nuclear fuel rod might last three years and then be radioactive for hundreds of thousands of years All after right, that. Let's, now, let's... Three, three years of hot water in return for 100,000 years of toxic substance that we don't know how to deal with and store safely. And when you look over in Germany at the moment, you look at Washington State, where these things are leaking out in polluting rivers, uh, contaminating rivers, why would you create that kind of mess and put let's... Australia at that kind of risk when there is a safer, cheaper alternative. David Limbrick. Let's talk about waste. Okay, so every source of energy production, electricity production has waste. Nuclear actually has the smallest amount of waste of any energy production source, and it's the only type of energy production where all of the waste is totally managed and captured. If we look at some of the waste generated by things like wind turbines, um, people don't think of that in waste because we only see the end product. Wind turbines are producing radioactive unmanaged waste in China right now. You need about 400 tonnes of coal to build a wind turbine. You need about 200 tonnes for the concrete and 200 tonnes to re refine the iron ore into steel. The blades on a wind turbine are all made from fossil fuels. There is no way to make those blades without fossil fuels. If you look at solar panels, for example, in Australia by 2050, there's projected to be about one and a half million tonnes of solar panels that are waste. And they've got cadmium telluride in them. That, that's a toxic material. There is no no plan at all to deal with solar panel waste at all. There, there is no recycling facilities here. They're just putting it in sheds. In South Australia, there's a startup facility, but at the moment, there's hardly any recycling of solar panels in Victoria. Final word, Adam Band. Well, nuclear at the moment is um, not only illegal in Australia for very good reasons, it's uh, on these, these small scale nuclear reactors don't exist yet um, at a commercial scale that David is talking about. What we do know about nuclear is that it would take a very, very long time to come on board in Australia, far too long to deal with the climate crisis. It is unsafe. And here in Australia, we are blessed with renewable opportunities. Um, we could have cheap renewables that are clean and um, the source of the fuel is is free. If there's an accident at a wind farm, as I said, it is called a stiff breeze, whereas an accident at a nuclear power plant is a disaster. Gentlemen, taxpayers should pay you two a bit extra this week because you've done my <laughs> job for me. <laughs> Adam Bant, David Grimm, it seems we may need to agree to disagree. Thanks so much for being on Between the Lines today. Thanks, Tom. Thanks a lot. Adam Bant is Deputy Leader of the Australian Greens Party and David Limbrick is the Liberal Democratic Party member of the Victorian Legislative Council. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Please note that the following interview with Alexander Downer was recorded before the recent Four Corners episode and the resurfacing of allegations relating to East Timor. Well, this weekend marks the 20th anniversary of the East Timor vote for independence. 
for the next fortnight, this would have been early to mid-September 99, the world would see the pro-Jakarta militia inflict brutality and suffering on the breakaway de facto Indonesian province. Death toll estimates ranged into the thousands, and tens of thousands of Timorese fled their homes to escape murderous militias and the Indonesian soldiers who became their partners in crime. They played witness to daily violence like this, which took place in September 99. First though to Dili, and this morning the UN mission in East Timor is in crisis. Pro-Jakarta militia have now struck at the heart of the UN's presence in the troubled territory. Last night, people were cut down in the streets just metres from the UN's headquarters in East Timor. At least two people were killed in the brutal street battle between gun-toting militia and pro-independence locals as hundreds of eyewitnesses watched Indonesian police cower before the militia's advance. These were heady days for Australian diplomacy led by the Howard government as troops were sent to East Timor. Our soldiers go to East Timor as part of a great Australian military tradition, which has never sought to impose the will of this country on others, but only to defend what is right. They go with our goodwill and total support. We wish them Godspeed and a safe return home. Now East Timor amounted to our most important military involvement since the Vietnam War, and it was a great achievement. Here's the Wall Street Journal editorial. It took guts and a generous commitment of money and prestige for Australia to lead other Asian democracies in helping to protect helpless people elsewhere in the region. That was the Wall Street Journal. Now remember, our foreign policy team included the Prime Minister John Howard, Defence Minister John Moore, DFAT head Ashton Calvert, of course, General Peter Cosgrove, and Foreign Minister Alexander Downer, who joins us from London. Now, these days, Alexander Downer is Executive Chairman of the International School of Government at the King's College in London, and he's Chairman of Policy Exchange, a prominent British think tank. G'day, Alexander. Welcome back to ABC Radio. Thank you very much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, in 1975, Indonesia annexed East Timor. It was occupied until the end of Sahara's downfall in 1998, and then, of course, uh, the referendum was 20 years ago uh, this weekend. When did you recognise that an independent East Timor was likely? Well, it's a good question. So when we came to government in 1996, we knew, as uh, the previous government, the Keating government and then the the Hawke government before that had found, that the issue of East Timor was always going to hijack our relationship with Indonesia. We were never really going to be able to build the right kind of relationship with Indonesia we needed to. And the people of East Timor, our next-door neighbour of Australia, were suffering through constant conflict and violence. So we engaged the Indonesian government, being President Sahato, when I first went to see him, Ali Alatas, the then foreign minister, constantly on the issue of East Timor, urging them to do something to break the mould and change the situation there. So they came up with this policy called wide-ranging autonomy. And they said, well, if we give East Timor wide-ranging autonomy, perhaps that will calm the violence. So that was their plan. So in 1998, I told Ali Alatas that we would do a survey of East Timorese opinion in East Timor, but also in the diaspora in um, Australia and Portugal and so on. And we asked people what they thought of wide-ranging autonomy and would that be sufficient for them. 
And basically the answer we got back from them was only for a short period of time, but eventually we want a choice as to whether we become independent or not. So this led to us, not only did I tell Ali Alatas of the results of the survey, but it led to the famous Howard letter mm-hmm. to Habibi, which I drafted with Ashton Calvert. And we had a National Security Committee of Cabinet to consider this letter. And we agreed that John Howard should sign it and sent the letter to Habibi at the end of the year. I don't remember exactly when, but it was around early December, right. a bit before Christmas. And Habibi on receiving this letter, and we had a good relationship with Habibi, on receiving this letter was, I think, pretty annoyed, to say the least. He himself summoned his own cabinet to consider the letter and decided, no, no, we're not going to provide wide-ranging autonomy for, say, 10 years and then hold a referendum at the end of that. We'll go ahead and have the referendum right away. So we were, of course, happy with that. And um, that is what happened. I mean, there's a lot more to it than all of that, but that's pretty much what happened and this was the pathway that led to it. And, and that East period independence. In, in early December 1998, and I remember there was a whole class of so-called experts, the Paul Keatings, the Greg Sheridans, the Dick Wilcotts, they were saying this was a appalling humiliation of Jakarta, but you're still convinced Indonesia to allow the East Timor referendum result to succeed from Indonesia August 30 uh, the next year. Yeah, so there were a lot of people who basically argued that we should stick with the policy that we'd had for quite some years Mm -hmm. under Labour and Liberal governments. Um, But I took the view that it was never really going to work. It wasn't sustainable in the long term because it was clear the people of East Timor um, didn't want Mm wide-ranging autonomy. They wanted independence. And, you know, you can make all the economic arguments you like, by the way, to people about the advantage of not being independent. Um, But they don't care about the economic cost. They just want to be independent. They just wanted their own country. You know, they were very nationalistic, to use the terminology of the modern day. So I Mm. thought, honestly, if you want to solve the East Timor problem and you want a long-term stable relationship with Indonesia, you have to break the mould here. And that is going to cause some short-term diplomatic pain for long-term gain, which I have to say has proved to be completely right. And let's go to the independence vote, August 30, 1999. The next fortnight, we had pro-Jakarta militias. They were rampaging out of control in East Timor. Calls were growing for the federal government to do something to stop the brutality. I'll never forget Kim Beasley in Parliament. He was the opposition leader saying, do something, Prime Minister. But at the same time, it was very clear the Indonesian military opposed the involvement of any Australian peacekeepers. So you must have had grave doubts about committing Australian troops in those circumstances. Well, we weren't going to go to war with Indonesia, which was what Kim Beasley was arguing. Mm. I do know that our usual friends out there on the left were screaming at us to invade Indonesian territory. I mean, honestly, I've never understood the emotions that drive people on the left. They don't seem to be very rational very often. We were, of course, happy for our military to intervene. And we had made preparations in Darwin for a military intervention, should it be possible to make that military intervention. So we had troops and so on assembled um, in Townsville and in Darwin to to send there. But, of course, first of all, we had to get the Indonesians to agree and we had to get a UN Security Council resolution um, authorising the intervention. 
Uh, this didn't take us very long, by the way, because as it happened, there was an APEC meeting in Auckland through all of this period. And we used that APEC meeting, which President Clinton yes. attended, to not only persuade the Indonesians that they really had to allow in a peacekeeping force, but to start building that peacekeeping force, the coalition of countries, because we were going to do it on our own if we could help it, to build a coalition of countries and particularly to get together some other Southeast Asian countries, ASEAN countries, and uh, get some support from the Americans and get that Security Council resolution through the UN Security Council. This is Tom Switzer on RN, and I'm chatting with the former Foreign Minister Alexander Downer. We're marking the 20th anniversary of Australia's liberation of East Timor from Indonesia. You mentioned Clinton, Alexander. Uh, East Timor, it has to be said, certainly in August of 99, was not on his radar. Uh, he was more focused on Kosovo at the time. So we um, not only wanted a Security Council resolution and the Americans to help with that, that was uh, less of a problem. We wanted the Americans to provide some particularly logistical support to the peacekeeping force and ideally to put boots on the ground. And um, the Clinton administration was totally opposed mm. to this. And we had quite a, a, a successful, is the best way to put it, phone hookup with him where he I think quite reluctantly said, well, look, I think we probably can do something to help you. We'll see what we can do and we'll look into it. Sorry, just to backtrack a bit, you went public on CNN to criticise the Americans yeah. and on September 7, you took a call from Madeleine Albright and she called you to express her anger. Tell us about that exchange first. Um, exactly, because the Americans, um, as we've been discussing, said that they wouldn't do anything yeah. to help. Um, and, you know, this, this aroused um, the emotions of John Howard and me because, you know, we're into, into Australian history and we know all the things Australia has done working with the Americans mm. and sometimes to help the Americans. So we were pretty angry about that. So I went on CNN and expressed my disappointment that the Americans weren't prepared to help us. And Madeleine Albright, you know, like 10 minutes later, rang me and said, I was lying in my bed watching you on TV, criticising our administration and want to say how disappointed I am that you would have taken that approach. And I said to her, well, you may be, but I am profoundly disappointed that you're not prepared to um, help us. And her answer to that was, look, I'm doing my best as the Secretary of State, but I have to persuade the President and he's been reluctant up until now. So just leave it with me and promise you won't make any more critical public comments. I said, well, I'll give you a break. And I think the other thing that um, people in Australia would never really think about is that Indonesia was colonised by the Dutch um, and fought a war of independence. And this whole notion of Western powers colonising them um, controlling them, having their armies spread around their countries. It means a huge amount in a country like that. Um, so the idea of us sending in troops into Indonesia was hugely resisted by elements of the Indonesian military. So we did worry, even though the peacekeeping force had been agreed to by President Habibi, agreed to by General Waranto, who was the head of TNI at the time, of the Indonesian military and agreed to by the UN Security Council, 
um, we thought there could be at least elements of the Indonesian military mm. which would militarily resist the peacekeeping force. And so by the end of September 99, the Indonesian army hands over authority for East Timor to a multinational force, obviously led by Australia. But by early October 99, you still had your critics. Paul Keating was one of them. He accused both you and John Howard of political opportunism, attempting to score a domestic political points with foreign policy, uh, needlessly lobbying Habibi to grant East Timor independence. And he said, this was in early October 99, Keating said this was Australia's biggest foreign policy disaster since the Vietnam War. I mean, their basic argument was we should have left the East Timor issue as it was, um, and focused on the relationship with Indonesia. That was, as Keating would have put it, the main game. But the trouble is you couldn't play the main game well enough when you had the East Timor issue um, just burning away and people being killed in East Timor and that particular province of Indonesia. It just didn't fit into the Republic of Indonesia and it never was going to. And what is more, it didn't take us 10 years to rehabilitate our relationship with Indonesia. But I think history has borne out that our judgment was not wrong, but right. Alexander Downer, great to have you on Between the Lines today. It's a great pleasure, Tom. Alexander Downer was Australia's Foreign Minister from early 1996 to late 2007. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Between the Lines. Always great to have your company. And remember, if you'd like to download the program, abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Of course, you can always download the podcast. We've got some great back issues, if I may say so myself. My favourite in recent times was former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd debating the great political scientist John Mearsheimer on Australia-China policy. This is Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.